welcome to Herdart Materials. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. In this very special episode, we are talking about the making of His Dark Materials, like mini TV episode that they put up about a week ago. On BBC iPlayer. Woohoo. Woohoo. By the way, I'm Rach. Oh, and I'm Faye. Hi. I'm well, that so was a fun intro. We tried to do the intro without reading the intro, which is what we usually do, and we forgot to say our own names. Well done. Us. We did. Brilliant. <laughs> well, you forgot. I, I I put it in in the end. It's fine. There will be spoilers in this episode, so if you haven't read all of the books and seen the TV show, pop back when you have, and we'll be here. A couple of weeks ago, we rewatched the first episode and we tweeted along. And then the His Dark Materials team surprised the world with a very exciting release of a making of His Dark Materials TV show that's like, it's about half an hour Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or so. And it's all like really great little behind the scenes bits. So today we both sat down and watched it. And yeah, did you enjoy it, Faye? Yeah, it was great. So we, like Rich said, after we tweeted along, we put a little poll up on our Instagram and Twitter and asked you guys if you wanted us to cover this bonus episode. And you all said yes. So here we are. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, it was really great. I kind of, it was half an hour long. So it's, if if you're in the UK, it's on BBC iPlayer. I'm not sure where it is. If you're not in the UK, I'm, I don't even know if it if it is anywhere else. Hopefully it will be up on the YouTubes somewhere. Yeah, or like HBO. Do they have some kind of streaming service that it could be on? I don't know. I'm not American. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. also, I'm also not sure for like other people around the world where it will be, but I do know if you're in, if you're in the UK, it's on BBC iPlayer. The first thing I thought when I put it on was like, I'm kind of good. It was only half an hour. I, I wanted it to be longer. They could easily do a lot of those, and you could spend half an hour with the costume department, half an hour with the VFX yeah. team, half an hour with the puppeteers and all the different departments because everyone has so much to say and um, overwhelmingly everyone had so much passion for the like oh, yes. original source material yeah definitely what you just said actually reminded me of do you know, have you seen on disney plus that they, that's literally what they've done for the mandalorian so they've got like a making of the mandalorian tv series and it's like eight episodes long and like they've only released the first one but it's that one in particular is about directing and they're doing like mm-hmm. i don't know exactly what they're covering but it sounds like they're going to be covering like different areas of the tv show every time and i just can't wait for the episode that will hopefully be about baby yoda because that's all i care about <laughs> we didn't come here to talk about baby yoda Faye. we came here to talk about pan okay and yorick yeah. that is fine by me well, the first thing that i wrote down in my notes was that obviously it's narrated by uh, clark peters who plays the master and i didn't know that he was american i don't think i knew that either but i really loved his narration i thought it was really lovely it was very storybook and i appreciate Mm. it yeah he's from new york i had a little google of him and i was like i had no idea he's his accent is really really good in the show i didn't notice at all also one of the things i realized is john far just talks like that oh yeah he does i loved that his voice is so great yeah it was really good to see like all the actors and the crew as well 
talking about how much they love the books. That's so great. I'd love to see that. Especially, obviously, we knew Lynn loved the books and we'd heard from Dan and Colleen about uh, James McAvoy also loving the books, but it was really nice to hear James McAvoy talk about it because I kind of feel... I love James McAvoy, but because I've seen him as Asriel most recently, I feel like that's what I've kind of... I've projected Asriel onto James McAvoy <laughs> and, like, to hear him talking and being, like, really nice and sweet and talking about how much he loves the books. I was like, oh. <laughs> I really enjoyed that he said he'd never seen himself as an Asriel, but now that he's playing yeah. the role, he really feels it, which I think yeah. is really great. And that he kept referring to Stel Maria as Stel. Stel? It was so what sweet. That? And he'd be like, oh, I think if we were walking into a room, like, if it might be dangerous, Stel would walk in first to scope it out. And I was like, oh, Stel. Stel. And also, I just loved that he thought about that. And, like, he was, I think he was the one that said that uh, everyone in Lyra's world is a Jewer, which is obviously really true because of humans and demons. But the fact that, yeah, he had those conversations with the puppeteer for, for Stel about, like, who was going to, like, walk into a room first and stuff. I thought that was really cool. One of the overwhelming things is just how much of a family it all appears to yeah. be. All the actors talking about how much they got on with the people that were puppeteering their demons. What's interesting is that they didn't really talk to many of the voice people. Yeah, that's true. Except for, obviously, Joe Tamberg, who puppeteered Yorick and voiced him. Yeah. But a lot of the puppeteers aren't the same people doing the voices. And I'd be really interested to hear about the more about the relationship between the voice actors and the actors, like, if there is one. That's true, because we... So, I don't know about you, Rich, but the most of the, like, demons, I've only really seen Hester, uh, who is played by Christella Alonzo, because she tweets a lot, and her and Lynn tweet back and forth, and she's a comedian and an actress anyway, so she's quite prominent. But I haven't really seen or heard much in the terms of behind-the-scenes stuff from, like... The voice actors of Pan and Stel Maria and like the other demons, they seem to, I don't know, like not be featured heavily or unless I've just missed it and I've not really been looking for that. But uh, yeah, I haven't seen much from, from them. So I'd love to like see what the, what I assume little boy who plays Pan looks like because he's yeah. and sounds like I think he's I've, I mean, I've trolled the IMDb a few times and he is a very a sweet child. <laughs> You may have noticed this is a very freeform episode. We're mm -hmm. just kind of chatting how we feel. In an attempt at some kind of order, I would like to say how much I enjoyed. They spent ages at the beginning just filming shots of the book, yeah. <laughs> like left and right, and like, look at this book. And it's obviously a book that someone's had and read because it's like a little bit tired, but it is, no, it is the same exact edition as mine. It's the same book cover, but it is in way better condition than my book is <laughs> and I even like I paused the documentary and I sent Faye a photo of my book next to the book on the screen and was just like it me yeah. but mine's worse <laughs> yeah it kind of highlighted how just how tattered yours is Rich yeah <laughs> one thing that I noticed is how intricate the demon puppets were if you haven't seen this and you don't know they um instead of like having a ball on a stick which is what you kind of usually get when there's a cgi character or like a very crude like puppet um so that actors can interact with it they actually built puppets of the demons and they looked amazing yeah i really like the style of puppets it's they are quite similar in a lot of ways but obviously they haven't gone into the same level of detail and finishing because it's more about the shape and the movement they're similar in a lot of ways to the puppets 
in the His Dark Materials theatrical production mm. that there was, which I desperately want to find a copy of somewhere to watch. Yeah. And I'm hoping they've filmed it and put it out somewhere into the world because that was back when I was really small. They did it at the National Theatre. Mm. And I just remember seeing iterations of the puppets when I was doing research for a course that I was on on my art foundation and they are spectacular puppets they're beautiful Uh, and it's very similar vibes to that which I really enjoy and it feels like they're like self-referencing in a lot of ways. Was the play or theatrical production the entire thing or was it just the first book? I think it was just the Northern Lights but I'm not sure. It they couldn't fit the whole right? thing into like, like one it'd be three like hour uh, play. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen it, so I wouldn't know. Yeah. Oh well, I have. So. <laughs> <laughs> what I also thought from watching the cast being interviewed in this was how much Daphne Keane's grown up already. So much. I know when she uh, she did the tweet along that we mentioned at the beginning, and she did like a video to promote it. And she looks so grown up. I don't, like, obviously there's been a lot of time since I filmed the first season to now, like a couple of years. And she is a, she is of that age where you kind of just shoot up. But I was like, she looks so young, like playing Lyra. It's interesting because I read somewhere that, or maybe it was in a podcast. I think it was in the Adam Buxton podcast where he interviewed Philip Pullman. And Philip was saying like the, the main challenge with casting someone like Lyra or Will is the fact that the books are all set within quite a short span of time. And these kids... Yeah will grow really fast and it will affect how we see the actions of the characters if they are too old by the time they're getting to the last book. And it's like, quick, get it all filmed, do it now. Yeah, if you remember as well what uh, Dan and Colleen said, the casting directors, when we interviewed them, they said very similar things, didn't they? Because they said that the process took so long, especially for Lyra and Will, and for Will especially, that they ended up seeing some boys to play will towards the end of the process who they'd seen at the beginning of the process and they'd already aged out of the role i was so happy with how excited ruth wilson was about her monkey yeah and the fact that she was talking about the puppeteer who plays her monkey i can't remember his name i think it it was brian fisher was it i did write his name down i need to look that up because she'd like walk into a room and if she couldn't see him she'd be like where is he where is he like where's my demon there's some symbiotic relationship between the actors and the people puppeteering their demons is really lovely yeah i know that most like we said most of the actors were big fans of the books anyway but i love how the actors really knew the importance of the demons and they like they brought that to their their performance but also how they worked in their performance so like you were saying ruth wilson was like where's my demon where's brian where's brian and like james mcavoy with stel maria yeah it, it's just really nice to see how how seriously everyone took it i suppose not that i wasn't expecting them to but you can tell how much love and passion went into it from everyone that was involved yeah and confirmation in the tv episodes we were having discussions as to whether we thought ruth wilson had had some kind of physical movement training to make herself act more like a monkey and then she confirms in this that she did work with the guy puppeteering the monkey on moving more like a monkey and more of like putting that into their relationship because he doesn't talk it makes it so much harder to communicate a lot of those similarities between the two of them so it's really great that she was able to do that and i just love that we speculated that maybe she'd had someone help to teach her to move like a monkey and they did yeah yeah (laughs) amazing and uh, while we're talking about demons as well, we've got to mention friend of the pod, Russell Dodgson, who has a little yeah. interview on this, which is great. Nice to see Russell. Uh, and he talks a lot about the intricacy of creating the demons and especially 
the little monkey prick and how difficult and satisfying it was to to get the movement and also the facial expressions of that demon right because obviously like you were saying rich he doesn't talk so they they have to portray some kind of emotion on the monkey's face which must be quite difficult but they did such a great job with it this adaptation of the books has completely changed the way i view the monkey it says so much about how well it was done (laughs) one of my notes was just lynn loves a bar fight (laughs) it's so lovely to see how much fun all the actors are having especially with regards to their costumes yes or hearing from the costume designer and hearing from Lynn and from Ruth Wilson and from everybody about how special it was that all of the costumes were made just for them and all of the thought that went into all of the little, t- the tiny aspects of the costumes was so great and so interesting. And the fact that the piece is so periodless, because mm. we constantly talk about this on the podcast, like what time period do we think it is? There's all these Zeppelins and then, but then there's like different levels of intricacies of technology that we see throughout the books and they did such a good job of seating it in this kind of unknown time period that felt familiar but nostalgic but unfamiliar and a lot of that is down to the costuming and the time periods of clothing that they chose to draw from which I love. There's a bit with Caroline McCall who was a costume designer and I loved when she was talking about the Egyptians and their costumes and she was saying that they needed to look a little bit older and like they'd been handed down but she was talking about the Egyptians relationship to their demons and how a lot of the costumes like in the minute detail like you were saying Rich they had like little nods to their demons in them and I thought that was so cool and it's not something that you necessarily notice when you're watching unless there was a particular close-up on Egyptian character but it's definitely not something that I noticed, but I loved hearing about that. I thought that was so cool. And just the attention to detail, to things that most of us wouldn't even see or catch is just great. The same thing applies to the sets as well, Yeah. with the levels of intricacy that they went into in Lord Asriel's lab and the fact that they built the entirety of Trollocent. There's a reason that was probably one of my favourite episodes of this season. Yeah. And I think it's because of the level of detail they went into and the fact that you did feel so seated in the world because the whole episode was happening within a physical place and you could feel that it was like this this whole town. It was really cool. Yeah, a lot, I think the cast and crew were saying that it felt like an actual town when they were in it. They just basically built a town for that one episode and I was like, that is some commitment right there. It was nice that they got a little bit of an interview with Philip Pullman in there as well about how... Definitely. He was definitely up for the TV show because he wanted it more in a more long-form format. And he feels privileged to have it have his works be made into this amazing adaptation. And I really liked that a lot. Definitely. I think there's a lot to be said for how rare it is that books are chosen to be made into something like a TV series. We, yeah. Everyone complains, like, oh, nothing original is being written for TV or film. Like, it's all based on books. But, like, to be one of the people that's written a book that's popular enough, that people love enough, that they'll put the effort in. That's, yeah. There's clearly so much love and attention put into this. It must be so exciting to have that with something that you've made. Definitely. And I love as well that he wasn't precious about them changing things. He said that it's an adaptation. That's exactly what an adaptation means. It needs to fit in a different format. And then Mm -hmm. Jack Thorne was saying that he... So the writer, Jack Thorne, he was saying that he wanted to follow the truth of the books rather than the, like, linear story, which means that everything doesn't have to be in the same order, but it still follows the story and, like, bits can be added in and taken away as long as it adds to that truth that they're trying to tell. And I thought that was really cool. I love that he mentioned how 
it's super great to have an author that's alive and that's willing to talk to you <laughs> because then you can ask them questions. And I was like, oh, does that mean that we can think of everything that they've added as like extra backstory? So for yeah. example, the additional Boreal backstory, the additional Will backstory that comes in before the point we meet him in the books. Does that mean we can canonize all of that? Mm. Because that is brilliant Definitely. and I'm here for it. If Jack Thorne has gone to Philip Pullman and said, yeah, but how did Boreal actually end up in... This is also spoilers for book two, sorry. How did he end up in Oxford? <laughs> like, let's let's get more into that. And if Philip, yeah. like, fleshes that out, that's brilliant. Definitely. And also, can we count Jack Thorne as a friend of the pod scene as he tweeted us that one time? <laughs> I would love to. We're, we're, we're pestering. Hopefully we'll, we'll get that interview. Yeah. He did conf- <laughs> He confirmed that the master and the librarian are a couple. So, And what more could we ask yes. from him? to be honest no more I, it's all I need it's all I need except for that Mrs Coulter spin-off series write that for us please Jack. yeah yeah come with that please we'd appreciate it Joel Collins who is a production designer he said that he wanted to use nostalgia but to move that nostalgia forwards to find new audiences as well which I thought was interesting and they talked a lot about using as many real world elements as they could and also the alethiometer and like how they changed it slightly from the description of the books because they didn't want it to look like a Victorian pocket watch, uh, which I appreciate. Because if you remember, there was talk when the season first started and everyone was like, oh, the alethiometer's not round. And it's like, well, it still kind of is. It kind of sits in that round. It's still a clock face within a yeah. box. Yeah. yeah. I love how outraged people were that it was around because I think it's still performing the same function. It still has the same level of intricacy. And they kind of explain this in the documentary as well. You know, it still performs the function it's supposed to perform and it still has the level of detail and intricacy. It's just not the exact same shape. Yeah. Like the only difference is we put it in this square box, but that feels more practical and compact and more like an instrument than a pocket watch. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. I like that. Yeah, definitely. I also love that they told Daphne Keane she could not break it because it was so expensive and it kind of like brings a little bit of realism into the filming right you can't break the alethiometer or lose it it's very precious in the books and it's interesting and funny that it was very precious in the filming of the tv show as well I wonder how many they made if it was literally this is this is one of six in the world. You cannot break it, just like in just like in the books. Yeah, exactly. I liked as well, uh, moving on a little bit, James McAvoy uh, talked about the lighting, which I thought was interesting because you kind of don't... Lighting isn't a thing that when you do the behind-the-scenes stuff that people talk about much, and it is very complicated and a great skill to be able to light a scene really well. And he talked about how good the lighting was because if you think about James McAvoy's scenes as Lord Asriel, most of the time he's just lit by the northern lights. I love that he said it was like being in a disco. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we mentioned that when we were watching it. We were like, oh my God, this light is ridiculous. Well, like, think about <laughs> how works. difficult that must have been to light that. I mean, I don't need to buy, buy a disco ball, it's fine. <laughs> The little, I know, I'm, I'm skipping back to demons now, but I'm just looking through my notes. And I'm so here for talking about demons, don't worry. <laughs> I think it was actually uh, Russell that said that they spoke for a long time about what to do about the demons, and they decided that they had to be CGI because they had to have that level of realism that I don't think that they would have got with puppets because they needed to be so, like, agile that they wouldn't have got that. And when they were showing the puppets... And the little pan puppet was so cute. They were like in Oxford, in sorry, in Jordan College, and uh, I think it was a scene with Lyra and Ruth Wilson, and she uh, the puppeteer was like 
walking like pan behind them and he just looks so cute as a little puppet this is why i'm so excited for the stage production yeah. that's happening in the summer of la belle sauvage because the cg animals are brilliant they've done an amazing job with them but there's something so alive and whimsical about a puppet mm-hmm. when yeah. you're seeing it in person as well and when that's well puppeteered there's something so alive about it that i think is hard to feel when you're seeing a CG animal on the screen. I think yeah. that might just be me. I also find it really interesting they discussed how they could change the demons and ended up being like, well, they have to be animals. And it's like, what were you thinking they would be? Like, you yeah. can't change something like that. What were your ideas Unless, for them, yeah. Yeah. Unless they were thinking of making them more, like, semi-transparent and magical and ethereal in some way that would be you'd get away with less fur textures Mm. (laughs) i just had a thought and i know i'm sorry everyone we're jumping back and forth but this is what we used to do in our tv show episodes so you're probably used to it if you listen to those true (laughs) but i had a thought of the about the alethiometer and i just thought it was a really great little tidbit of daphne Keane saying how heavy it was and they broke like three of her bags because it was that heavy yeah and that makes me think did they have more than one because like in the scenes where she's like holding it it just looks really delicate i it might just be like they're just amazing at what they do and they've just made it look really delicate it didn't look heavy at all but yeah the fact that it broke bags i guess because she, she's saying it does work you can turn the wheels that the hands do yeah. move i'm wondering what is inside it that's obviously they've gone to such efforts to make mm. it mechanically operational let's talk about skipping all over the place about daphne keen riding the puppeted <gasps> bareback because oh my God. that was amazing to me the fact that they were like we can't do this on a mechanical rig that's purely mechanical because it's not as natural so somebody's gonna have to wear this giant mechanical bear rucksack and also Daphne Keene is going to sit on top of it. Right. Whoever is under that. And they're just walking around. And they're not falling out. I was like, I would have thought you'd need at least two to three people to simulate that bear. I was imagining like a warhorse type rig with like a person at either end and someone sat in the middle. But no. If you haven't watched it, this is basically how they got around Ly- uh, Lyra riding Yorick. And I just, when I was watching it, my back hurt for that person that was carrying her around. Yeah. I was like... <laughs> Oh my god, can you imagine? And think about how many hours it would have taken to film all that as well. They'd have had to do it in super short bursts. Yeah. It's so interesting. It's such a funny image to see Daphne Keane just sat on top of a man that's like holding a puppet. On on top of a a bear, on top of a man's shoulders. (laughs) I love that they did it though because they were saying they didn't just want to have a CGI girl on a CGI bear, which I... 100% 100% appreciate the efforts they've gone to to blend the CG elements with the real elements to support and prop mm-hmm. up the CG in a way that if you just treated it like a video game kind of thing, it would yeah. come out looking naff. And they've yeah. gone to the efforts of putting in the real world work to help the CG department do the best job they can, which I think is so... It shows like the dedication, definitely. Definitely. And... On Yorick, Joe Tanberg, how amazing is he? Oh, God, he's so good. So great. I loved hearing his normal speaking voice, because obviously we've only heard him as Yorick, and then him... Right? It's so different. Right? And then him going into Yorick's voice, I was like, oh, my God, amazing. But, like, if you remember to bring up the uh, interview we did with Dan and Colleen again, they were talking about how they were finding it difficult to find a, a Yorick and they were looking for older men to do it. And they brought Joe Tanberg into the casting room and 
the uh, I think whoever it might have been their boss or somebody else the director the director yeah, yeah the director of the episode wasn't it and they, he was yeah. like are you sure about this and then he like did the thing and everyone was like oh my god because yeah. <laughs> they were looking for somebody older and then yeah Joe did the voice and they were all won over and I just thought that's so cool I love that story so much yeah. and I love that story also while seeing Joe Tamburg doing his normal speaking voice and then doing the bear voice and it's such a magical performance. Yeah. And the fact that he got to, like, be really creative with it as well, because he operated, like we mentioned earlier, he operated the Yorick puppet. So he acted as Yorick, and they did all, like, the... I don't know what the official name... When they put dots on your face and stuff, like, facial recognition on him so that they, they could imprint that onto Yorick's face mm. when they CGI'd him later. And I thought, that's so great, because they could have easily had somebody else to do the puppeteering for Yorick, but I thought it was great that Joe Tamberg actually did it. And also seeing him walk around with that with that massive head is quite funny. <laughs> Joe Tamberg said it was very theatrical and that he really enjoyed doing it. Let's talk Serafina Pekula. Yeah. Controversial. I found all of the rationale behind changing up Serafina Pekula to be really, really interesting. Yeah. Because I can remember watching the TV series and thinking it's weird that she's flying without her cloud pine branches because the image of them on the branches is so cemented into my head Mm -hmm. from having read the book so many times. But the thing that I didn't find jarring that they talked a lot about was just the fact that they gave her the short hair. Yeah. They gave her the short hair and they still wrapped her in the silks but they made everything less flowy. And I was kind of fine with that Mm. because of the rationale behind it and because of the rationale being that her cloud pine branch is represented by tattoos on her skin saying that's her branch and it shows her power that she doesn't need an actual branch to do it and you know she's not got the little crown of little red flowers she's got like war paint on her face that symbolizes her being the queen of the witches and all this kind of stuff as they were describing and rationalizing it it made sense to me but i was still a little bit sad that i didn't get the image that i grew up with in my head my thing with that i think i spoke about a lot in the tv show is that because i came to these books a lot later i don't have that attachment to the characters and what they look like in my head i haven't hadn't really had time to form a big connection in that way so i kind of liked what they did with seraphina i liked when they were talking about her cloud pine and her not riding on the cloud pine and they were saying it's because they wanted the fact that she was free flying on her own denoted her power which i enjoyed and they were trying to do everything they can to make her look and be as powerful as possible and i did appreciate that i thought that the rationale behind everything was solid and yeah i really liked seraphina in the end anyway so i kind of i did like that they gave us that insight into why they changed up a few bits yeah i enjoyed the tiny daggers instead of the bow and arrow because i hadn't even thought about it but i loved that they fitted onto a onto a bracelet i thought that was really cool because i'd not really noticed that really in the tv show either and we've just got to the chapter where seraphina fires a bow and arrow into someone's eye (laughs) And it it didn't occur to me that we didn't get that in the TV show and that she had, like, a little dagger in her, like, wrists instead. I like that. Like, I don't have a problem with that. I liked that they made them to look like arrows. If you notice the, like, end of them looked like the head... No, what is it? Oh, the fletching. Yes. There you go, the fletching. Yeah. I know my technical arrow terms. I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah, they'd made the end of it look like fletching or fletching, however you say that. And I liked that. They said as well, one of the reasons why they kind of reduced down like her costume and her hair and things like that is because they wanted to, they didn't want her to have any vanity. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So they kept everything super simple with her. I like that a lot. And especially after having heard how 
difficult it was to pin down what they wanted for Serafina in the casting process mm-hmm. when we were talking to Dan and Colleen. It's really nice to hear how much effort went into her character yeah. after the after her being cast and getting the costume down and all the rationale that went behind it because I appreciate that the witches are incredibly hard to, to cast and I think they did a really good job with it and a lot of the choices they made were different but really interesting and it and the rationale behind it and the way the passion that people have for it kind of makes me just be like oh I can I can forgive pretty much anything because everyone that's working on it is working so hard and with such heart that I'm kind of like if you can explain to me why you've done it I'm 100% behind it because it's not some big network exec being like make them look more witchy or something or be like make it sexier like it's they're all doing the most faithful thing that they can think of for the books that they've read and they love and it's like yes exactly yeah and they're all fans and they care and I think that's what means the most I mean I can't speak for everyone but definitely to me that's what means the most to me as a fan to know that it is fans that are creating the series and putting their all into it and putting passion into it and like you said Rach if they're going to make changes that we might not agree with at least we've got a bunch of fans doing it and like you said not like a big network exec being like do this do that and they might have had yeah. a bit of that because like a lot of tv shows do but i think that they've found a good balance of making it something that people really love and that people now attribute to the series as a whole which is actually a really difficult thing to do if you think about it a lot of other film franchises that are related to books you kind of view them quite separately depending on how they're made and what fans feel about them but I feel like this has been this tv show has been so well received by everyone that it's now seen as like kind of like a compliment to the books really. I'm so off the back I'm so excited to watch The Golden Compass with you when we reach the end of this because (laughs) I want to feel your rage when things aren't done right because it is it was it had such a big budget and they did do some really exciting stuff and some of it is spot on some of it feels thoughtless and lacking in effort Mm. whereas like you could never say anything like that about this series yeah that's very true very true i am excited to watch the golden compass (laughs) yeah i wonder if um now that i've seen the tv show and seen how good it is i wonder if that will obviously have an impact on what i think about the golden compass but i wonder if i'd seen the golden compass before the tv show I would have thought, oh, this is not too bad. I had literally had a moment the other day where I was like, oh, I feel like I preferred the imagery of the guillotine in The Golden Compass to the guillotine in his Dark Materials TV series. Mm. And then I went back and watched the scene and I was like, oh, that's right. In my head, it's an amalgamation of the two and my own version. Right. And I'd misremembered how good I thought the Golden Compass version was. It wasn't as good as I thought. And also I remembered that I found the girl that plays Lyra annoying. Oh no. <laughs> I'm interested to see you watch it. But also just the moment Mrs. Coulter comes in and is blonde, I'm always like, get out of here. <laughs> how dare you? I was kind of hoping at the end they were gonna give give us like some kind of season two tease. I mean obviously they said it was coming back, but I was kind of hoping for like a little tease of it but we haven't had that yet although at the time of recording this I think it's the American Twitter account for His Dark Materials so I think that at Demons and Dust have tweeted three seconds of like the end of season one and it's I think it says something like the journey continues so uh, yeah I'm hoping we get something even like a trailer would be amazing it just feels like so long ago, doesn't it? Yeah, so long. Basically, watching that has just made me want to rewatch the series again. I did think that, do you know, 
watching that and when we did the tweet along for the first episode, I thought, I kind of want to watch it again. I might watch it again before season two, to be honest. Basically, what I got from watching the documentary as a whole is that I bloody love that it's made by fans. Yeah. I bloody love that it's made by people that care so much about it and seeing all the detail and effort that people have gone to to make it the best it can be is so exciting. And even just that short half-hour documentary, which, oh my God, make like five more, please. I want (laughs) to know more. Yeah. It was so exciting to see the amount of work that went into it and you can really feel it i could just sit there all day and watch people talking about the demon puppets and watch people talking about how they did the cg and watch people talking about the costumes like i want i want a full wardrobe rundown of every single character (laughs) and why they did what they did because i find it so fascinating hearing about other people's interpretations of the books and that's what's so exciting about watching this adaptation yeah i think for me it kind of cements how special this universe and fandom is it's very inclusive and just really warm and lovely and the documentary kind of confirms that and reinforces that because obviously the people that we've spoken to they've all been so lovely and they always they've all spoken about the rest of the cast and crew like a big family and i think the documentary really highlights that as well And that just feels so nice and warm and fuzzy to me to know that, yeah, everyone's such huge fans and they're doing their fucking best to make a great TV show and they've done so well. And I'm just so happy for them and for us that we get to watch it. And it's just so great. I agree. All of that and more. (laughs) All of the above. (laughs) I love that this community is one big family structure. It feels like we're all Egyptians here. Everyone that's read the books and has the feelings, the strong feelings about the books and the TV show, it feels like we're all one big family, kind of like the Egyptians. Definitely. I love it. I love it so much. Thanks so much for listening to this special bonus episode of Her Dark Materials. We hope that it wasn't too jumbled for you (laughs) as we spewed out our thoughts about how exciting everything was. Yeah. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at hdmpod and you can email us at herdartmaterialspod at gmail.com we bloody love an email and we'd love to know your thoughts about this absolutely yeah please email us if you've watched it thanks so much for listening bye thank you see you soon bye, bye.